This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Kaur. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. We have with us this morning, Duncan Armstrong. Duncan is a well-known Australian. Uh, in fact, a celebrated Australian, I think we would venture to say, came to prominence through his sporting success, firstly winning gold medals in the 1986 Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, and then um, most proudly for our nation, stepping into the Seoul Olympics and winning gold medals and holding world records at that space, the year after being elected the Young Australian of the Year and receiving an Order of Australian Medal. 1993, Duncan uh, exited the pool for the last time in a in a competitive sense and has moved into the world of media and corporate coaching. Duncan Armstrong, absolutely delighted to have you with us. How are you today? I'm pretty good, Brendan. I'm shut in like everybody else around the globe at the moment, but um, I'm handling it okay. Uh, it's really, really nice to speak to you. Um, you know, your circles come down to your family and the tight friends you make and things like that. So uh, it's really great to be here on the Inspiration Project to speak to you about uh, whatever we're going to speak about. That's yeah, the exciting part. We don't know what we're going to speak about, but well, it's going to be good. We haven't sent you through a list of questions, so it's just it's going to be let's, let's see where we go. Um, as a, yeah. an avid sports fan myself, I am I'm feeling the the uh, the loss of live sport you know you flick on foxtel and yeah. there's repeats of 1993 grand finals and this is you know mm. us open and the golf channel and all sorts of things as a commentator of of sport what's what's it meant for you this mm. this uh lockdown of of live entertainment sport it's a really interesting dynamic isn't it um I, as a grown australian man i've never actually had this much taken off me before yeah right um so it's a really, really interesting position. I've been, I haven't been a TV commentator for a few years, but I, I can imagine that uh, it must be really, really difficult because you get into these rhythms in your life, especially as a man. You get into these rhythms, and the weekend sport rhythm, especially when you work in it, is such a rhythm in your life. You know, you basically you build up to it, you do your research, you look at it, who's playing, who's swimming, who's running, who's cricketing, who's this, and to have that taken off you must be must be very, very weird mm. um, as, a, I, as just an armchair uh, sportsman like yourself now. Um, when the rugby league sort of said, because uh, I'm crazy about my rugby league, I grew up in a little country town called Rockhampton where rugby league is very, very important. And so um, probably my biggest sporting passion right now is rugby league. And to have the NRL sort of say, we've got to align with everything else and keep people safe and we're going to be cancelling basically the next well, the season really when you look at probably the recovery. And uh, at first, I was really cross. Mm. I was really angry. I thought, oh, you know, all those sort of things you think, how dare you? And mm. this is crazy. And this is nothing but a flu. And, mm. you know, let's take steps to isolate all the players. Let's play somewhere in isolation. You know, it was really all about me. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I got a little bit cross and things like that. But it must be very difficult for those sporting uh, for people in sport, all sport, 
whether you've been admin, coaching, or actually playing it, uh, or in the satellite businesses like the coverage, yeah. the television, the radio, uh, the catering, uh, the grounds, you know, the ground staff. You know, you can only look at how much we get involved in sport and how many thousands of Australian Facebook call that their bread and butter. Yeah. And and not to be lining up on the weekend. You know, the, the first Friday night that came up about four weeks ago when the NRL stopped, I think I've said to my wife, I said, this is probably the first time in about 80 years that rugby league's not been played in this yeah. country on a Friday night. Yeah, I think you yeah. did right. And, and, yeah, and then on the Saturday, it'd be more, more likely to be 110 years. Yeah. And, and she said, really? And I said, yeah, this is the profound effect that COVID-19 is having on our, us as a society that, you know, like these things that have been going for hundreds of years or yeah. 800 years is no longer going. And, yeah, you might look at it fairly flippant when people are losing their lives and family members are dying and things like that and what's happening overseas is really difficult. But when you do talk about how your life has changed and, you know, you're watching replays on TV because that's all you've got, yeah, um, it shows you just how much how much of a religion almost sport is in this country. Well, when, it, you know, you can, observation, you, can of faith, you can be a man of faith, you can follow Jesus, um, he can be the most, you know, central thing in life. But it's not until something that you sort of like have faith in, yeah, rugby league, gets taken away from you and if you deny it and you sit there going, oh, well, that's actually a lot more meaningful than I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> so right. So it lets you do a bit of a reassess, that's for sure. Indeed, puts priorities in place. I, I want to come back and, and ask you a bit about the the development sure. of sport into the business it's become and and what's your perspective on that. But let me, let me yep. take you back. You, you mentioned you grew up in Rockhampton, little town, North Queensland. Obviously, you're a Cowboys fan. That's your rugby league team. No? No, brother. No, 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 no. Okay, set us right. What Cowboys is... are a good team, but maybe not the Broncos. So. Oh, the Broncos. Okay, so still a Queensland through and through. Yeah, 1988, the Broncos ended the competition by playing Manly in round one. Oh, he knows his Manly history. Manly were the 1987 Premier. So in 1988, we got a national team in the rugby league and I went to the Olympics. So 88 for me. That is the was year. amazing. Uh, the zenith. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. given that, given your love for rugby league, which is obvious, and and uh, you're continuing in, in, in love for that sport, why didn't you end up playing rugby league? How did you end up being devoting your life to swimming or a, or a fair part of your life to swimming? Yeah, I, I I made the Queensland team under 13 rugby league and I played against Chief Harrigan, you know, selection match under lights in Rockhampton when I was 13. And I played with Gary Larson and a couple of the other guys wow. who went on with their careers yeah. and stuff like that. But I was, I was playing cricket, playing rugby league and swimming. And in Rockhampton, you can swim almost all the way through the year. It's so yeah. tropical and hot. And it had two 50-metre pools, one on the north side, one on the south side. So Rockhampton was one of those beautiful little country towns that batted well above its sporting weight um, and population and sport was the big export if you could be something in Rockhampton in sport. And we had world champions and we had Olympic champions. We had Olympic gold, uh, Commonwealth Games gold medalists like Kenrick Tucker in cycling. Yeah, right. And we had you know, um, Rod Reddy was from Rockhampton. He went on. And so we had this wonderful and rich, beautiful sporting history and every school seemed to have someone who wore the green and gold and you know, Allenstown State School was, was like that too. And we had this wonderful deputy, uh, deputy principal who was um, one of the 1942 Kokoda legends and really? still had shrapnel in his body and a you know, really, really strong person, personality, and he'd walk around with a cane and he'd poke you with the cane and say, are you a bold boy? And you'd go, yes, Mr. Hogan, I'm a bold boy. And he goes, good, because Australia needs 
golf course lead up spot. So I had this roots, roots sort of like calling out of my manhood from an early yeah. age from great yeah. men um, who loved their jobs. He was he loved being a teacher. He loved down on South Stage School. He loved Rockhampton. And he was very, very big in the Rock in Rockhampton Rock League community as well. So there was all these sort of connecting networks around um, around uh, strong men giving me a purpose in sport and stuff like that. So that was really, really influential on me. Mm. Sort of choose sport as something I wanted to go into, and. Um, and then, and this is, this is what I firmly believe. I firmly believe that your sport actually picks you. Really? Because I was playing rugby league, playing cricket, doing representation. I went and got selected for the Central Queensland uh, swimming team, and I had a win. And right. that win really sort of tipped the balance yep. between rugby league and cricket and swimming. And that win led to a a tracksuit and a team and yeah. that team led to another carnival and I was able to win that. So swimming really, I feel, chose me rather than those other sports. And I'll always have a passion for rugby league and a little bit for cricket, but swimming really made a lot more sense at that crucial time and I was able to go on with it. So when, when you were describing that, do you think it was physical attributes that suited you to success in the pool rather than on a, mm-hmm. on a footy field? Um, yeah, no, it's hard to say, like, desire has got more determination, sorry, desire determines your future more than your physical attribute. Yeah. There's, there's more talented swimmers walking around the streets than me and Paul, Susie O'Neill, these great legends of the, of the pool, um, more than me. There, there's, there's more Darren Lockyer's walking around the paddock. There's more, you know, Corey Parker's walking, sorry, walking around the streets, but they don't have the discipline. Yeah. to actually take whatever attributes they've got and align it to a desire to be the best they possibly can be that fuels their hard work, that gets them in front of the talented kids yeah. or the more physically physically capable kids mm. and then young adults and go on and on and on. So you have to marry up this unbelievable work ethic with whatever you've got. Yeah. And you can call that talent, class, physical attributes, whatever it is. But whatever you've got in that from your genetics, You've got to settle it up with the discipline, the hard work, and the uncompromising belief that you can be something in this. Because if you don't have the belief, you don't have the hard work, and then you don't have the talent, yeah. you're gone. Okay, yeah. and and that's not a horrible gone. That's just basically you're not going to do well against kids who've got it. Yeah. And so when I look at my swimming career, I just really understood that I wanted to do the hard work. Yeah. I really understood what it felt like to win. And I really understood that I'm not going to win with what I've got because I was never going to be the tallest, never going to be the biggest, I was never going to be the strongest, I was never going to be the fastest. But I could outwork all of those things if I was willing. Yeah. Okay, so I've always been more willing to do the work than the guy next to me. Mm. And that has always put me in front when it comes game time or race time mm. at whatever games I was going to. So it's, hearing you describe Rockhampton and the mm. over-representation that that little town has for – the elite sports and Mr. Hogan prodding you with mm. his with his cane, dr- calling out your manhood as you described. How much mm. of that resolve, that determination, was inherent in you as a personality? How much was the culture you, that you grew up in? Family culture, town culture, school culture. Mm. Yeah, I, 
Yeah, I think it's, I think the culture, the environmental culture has a huge influence on basically when you end up in your sporting career or where you end up in your life. Because all these lessons from a Mr. Hogan or Mr. Pickard or your dad or your crazy uncle that you saw uh, once or twice a year, but it was a strong man and he called out your manhood. All this environment, all this culture comes back to you in waves during tough times and hard times. And they, they become your cornerstone. And so that's why it's so important that as, as men, we invest in young boys around us. Mm. We invest in their uh, journey. And we we, are, we have to be very careful about how we uplift them and how we – that's why I like the, the name of your podcast. It's about inspiration. Yeah. We have to inspire our young men yeah. with these anthem sayings, like I just said, and just rolled off my tongue from Mr. Hogan. And then, you know, when I ran into Laurie Lawrence years later coming down to Rockhampton and he was going to be my coach to take me to that Olympic level, Laurie had all these anthems as well where he didn't have a cane to focus on us involved, but he had – 50 other sayings mm. that awoke my manhood that brought mm. me across the bridge of adolescence and, and challenged me to be more than just sitting around the couch or sitting around allowing life to give me what it, what it says I should have. Mm. Instead, these anthems awoke my manhood and inspired me to go out and create my future and create the results that I could be proud of. And so I, 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 I totally believe, believe what you said, Brendan, is that this is a cultural thing yeah. that I was lucky enough to, to grow up around these men who poked and prodded me and asked me to be bold and called me out. And my dad had a lot to do with it and my family had a lot to do with it. And I'm number four out of five kids. So that had something mm. to do with it when you look at the spacing and the, and, the, um, and the number of kids and where you are in that line and whether your dad made a lot of money, whether your dad didn't make a lot of money, whether food was scarce, whether it wasn't scarce, whether you had a new bike every year or you didn't. Mm. All this goes into sort of, whether you're going to be willing to work at a goal mm. or work at being better, all of that rolls into it. But, but going back to your question, I was very lucky with Rockhampton. Mm. I was very lucky with the men in Rockhampton and my dad and my family. Um, and I was very fortunate to be able to play two or three sports before swimming arrived. Yeah. Because then I wasn't completely unbalanced. I yeah. had a team sport and I knew yeah. what it meant to pull you away. So when I went into the swimming squad, I kind of had that team feel and I wanted to do well as a team as well. Yeah. So I had that sort of um, balance in terms of it's all about me or it's all about the team, but I had a combo of both. Yeah, yeah. And so we're able to sort of like trend that. Now. Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, people unfamiliar with the, the working of that sport would see swimming mm. is a very individual enterprise. It's, you know, just you and the yeah. line on the bottom of the pool and your training and it's you and the time mm. and there isn't necessarily an understanding about team, but – you, you found that? You mm. found that the swimming squad, the the Olympic team, the mm. Commonwealth Games team reinforced your motivation and your, your sense of identity? Absolutely. So it's a paradoxical sport, what you're calling out there. Yes, I'm the only one on the blocks when the gun goes, so it's really only up to me. It's all up to me. I either, either win and usually you're in a team when you win mm. or you fail and you're all alone. Yeah. So it's the old saying. Victory has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. So it's a paradoxical sport because you're standing on the blocks alone. You've got to get the job done. You, you do. But you've got this enormous team around you from your parents and your family to your nutritionists and your massage and your physios and your kinesiologists and your running coach and your swimming coach and your weights coach. And, you know, then you've got your sponsors on top of that, your business arrangements with people sort of investing in you. You've got your business manager, you've got accountants here. So this is huge team that's all coming down to the full lap. You're yeah. doing them, yeah. but everyone's riding on your back with yeah. it. And, and the swimming squad, as you call it out, is a really, really serious dynamic in terms of being able to cope 
not only just with the pressure of that, but also your bad days when you get to the pool at 4.45 and you don't want to be there. It's a Thursday yeah. morning, it's the middle of winter. You're three years away from the Olympic Games, so the big show's way off in the distance. And, and you're looking around going, you know, well, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not getting faster. This is too much. I don't want to do my 200 laps today. And then a teammate will look at you and go, man, you are swimming so well. Yeah. You know, see, some you don't. Yeah. And, and just picks you up, just picks you up with that support, picks you up with that one sentence, picks you up with that little bit of enthusiasm for your career that you don't yeah. And hopefully some days you're doing that as well. You're yeah. calling out where you see good performance. You're calling out that your teammates might be struggling. You put your arm around them and all that kind of thing. So very much like we're doing with the COVID-19 thing, we're being asked to check in with mates. We're being yeah. asked to call people. And it might be just that little pickup that people need at this time. And and in the pool, in the dark of the winter, long way away from sort of the reward that you're all training for, um, sometimes it's just that teamwork, that, just that, that nudge gets you across the line for that particular session. Then by the afternoon, you've covered a bit, you might have had a nap in the afternoon, you've eaten your food, you feel better, and you roll on. Yeah. And sometimes it's just that, just need that nudge to keep rolling. So, yeah, it's a paradoxical sport. We travel as a team, we eat as a team, um, but we swim individually. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the work doesn't get done by itself or the team, it has to get done by you. Yeah. So there, there's some real reality to that. There's some reality in terms of like, oh, but there's also some joy in it because you're surrounded by people doing it. Yeah. So you're all heading off in the one direction, you're all on the same bus, and it is tremendously exciting. Yeah. It's, it's again, as an observer for the, the broadcast of these, you hear people talk about the strength of the team on pool side and what that means mm. and whether there's good morale mm. in the team and how it affects individual performances. That's the ultimate expression of what you're describing. You're out there in the Olympic village and you're yeah. there with a, uh, yeah. your co-competitors and you, yeah. you draw on their strength, you draw on their success to spur yeah. you along. Absolutely. Yeah, it's about momentum. Like um, the Olympic dynamic is, is, is crazy. You know, like the, the race I swam the tournament is freestyle takes one minute and 45 seconds, right? That's it. it. takes you one minute and so 45 laps. seconds. Take, takes me a bit longer. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, if you, if you get in that arena, you better be swimming 145, otherwise you won't be in that arena. <laughs> but at the Olympic level, you're swimming 145. So it's one minute and 45 seconds on one day yeah. every four years. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Like a, and, there's, yeah, it's, it, and, the, and the four-year clock, is just ticking away the whole time because on that day, whether it be the 19th of August that it should have been this year or, or the 19th of like it was in 1988, the gun is going to go. Yeah. And there's going to be eight guys in that final. And, and there's no pity. It's like a great white shark. There's no pity. Yeah. There's no – it doesn't matter if you're short. It doesn't matter if you're sick. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're injured. It doesn't matter if you miss the bus. It doesn't matter if you don't, you don't get there on top. You'll get DQ'd and it'll go and someone will win this race. Yes. And so – that sort of pressure means that when you get to the Olympic Games in that Olympic team, and there's 30, 36 selected every four years, that you have the track seat on, you've got the crest on your, on your chest, on your heart with the Olympic rings, Australia, you're representing, okay? And so you've fought your way into the, one of those 36 track seats, and then it becomes about us and yeah. them. And it's yeah. this enormous support group to sort of say, we will stand strong in this pressure. We will stand together and we'll fall together or we'll win together, but we will be together. And that that makes it manageable. Mm. Not all the time, but if you're lucky enough to draw on that strength, hold your head up high, wear the track seat, square your shoulders, and get out there 
and and just swim like you've trained to swim and not let the pressure get to you. Like I remember looking up in the stands down on the pool deck and you're on the pool deck for 20 minutes doing intros and things like that. So the four-year clock comes down to 20 minutes, mm. okay? And you put in hundreds and thousands of laps, hundreds and thousands of mornings. And here's your, here's your moment happening in 20 minutes and everything is going on in your head. You're sweating. Your, your legs are shaking. You've never been to the Olympics before. Every Olympics every four years is different. So it doesn't matter if you've been to six. This yeah. one's a new one, of course. Yeah. And you look up at the stand and your mates are all sitting there just going, mate, you've got this. You've got this. You've got this. And you look in their eyes and you, and then you calm down. Yeah. You sit there going, right. Yeah. I got this. And then you turn around and you get into the business of it. So that's where that teamwork really, really comes alive in the hot, hot cauldron of the four-year clock at the Olympic Games in a foreign land with much bigger, stronger teams like the USSR, like Russia, East Germany, um, America. They all had better teams than us. So for us, it was a little bit like the siege mentality you see in some rugby league teams yeah. uh, where it's us against them. Yeah. And you, you really draw on that strength. You draw on that bond and you draw on that hat touching your arm, uh, touching your heart because then we all get an opportunity to improve the brand or take away from it every yeah. day that we're in it. Yeah. And, and it really means something when you're representing a line of people wearing that tracksuit going back to 1896 and everybody who's going to come after you. You yeah. know this is your place in the team. Yeah. And you've got to square your shoulders and look left and right, see the legends before you, see the legends become and own your spot. Yeah. That's fantastic. Beautiful description. Thank you. It was very vivid. Mm. Yeah. Sort of have a yeah. sense of what it must have been the the intensity of standing on that block. And this is it. This is this gun. Yeah. And it's four years of hard work and effort, or maybe longer, <laughs> that you've been building to this yeah. time. So you've had the benefit. But again, of, it's, sorry. It's about the older. Sorry, it's about the older men too. Sort of investing in you, like the captains of the team that come before you, invest in you by almost poking you with that with the cane, like Mister Hogan. And I remember Laurie would 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 look at us on deck and. It, it, we'd start describing it and start really breaking it down because the more rehearsal you can mentally do before you get on deck at the Olympic Games, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. So nothing is too much of a surprise. And Laurie would always look at us and go, eight men in the final. Yeah. Eight men can win this race. Someone's got to win this bloody race. It might as well be you. <laughs> that is Laurie Lawrence. I, I can hear that. <laughs> yeah. and, that's, and, that's the, and that's the way these anthem stories work on young men. Mm. By making it simple. And opening their mind mm. that someone's got to win this race when the gun goes on this day. Possibility. It, you. Mm. it means everything. You've had the the uh, success story at the end. You've stood in the box, mm. the gun's gone, four laps finished, and you've got the gold medal. What what does yep. it feel like when you when you realise that all that work and effort has reaped the rewards that you hoped for and you're you're, you're a winner? It actually struck me a bit differently, Brendan. Like I thought it would be something completely than what actually eventually and what actually unfolded. Like what happened was um, I touched the wall in world record uh, world record time. So there's your lifelong goal to break the world record. And then I was two tenths in front of the rest of the field, so I got my hand on the wall first at the Olympic Games, and everything turns into slow motion. Yeah, you know everything because it becomes it becomes I'm in my reality doing the business of suing, I hit the wall and then everything I've dreamed of, I now enter, and it, it becomes surreal. Mm. Like you put this in, you put this moment in your subconscious. So here's, here's a bit of psychology for your sports lovers out there. 
if you don't cement something in your subconscious, it's never going to happen. Mm. You've got to dream it into your reality. So Darren Lockyer, uh, myself, Ian Thorpe, Susie O'Neill, Kathy Freeman, we've all run our races or kicked the field goal or, or passed the perfect pass a million times in our head to yeah. cement it in our subconscious, yeah. right? So when the opportunity comes up, bang, we can make it a reality. Mm. And it's a little bit like a lotto winner. Say a lotto winner wins $5 million, you know, and and they've never been really uh, wealthy in their life. And they hand back that $5 million under two years. Why? Because they've never had in their subconscious what it's like yeah. to be wealthy. Yeah. And therefore, they go back to their subconscious and their reality by giving it away and going back to being not well off. And same as, same as athletes. Like I can talk to an athlete and I go, hey, what's your dreams? Tell me what your dreams are, mate. And he goes, oh, look, I just want to make the Australian team. And I'm like, dude, we've got to rev up those dreams because that might not be high enough. Yeah, right. You know, and you might be shooting a little bit low uh, because you need to be able to see how you make the Australian team, not just being in the Australian yeah. team tracks, but like what's the race that's going to put you there? What yeah. does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it yeah. sound like? What does it feel like? Because if you can rev up basically how you see it and crystallize it, it will happen for you if you do all the work and it can execute, right? Yeah. So, so when I touched that wall, I basically entered my subconscious. Yeah. Right. I entered basically what I dreamt about. And so it really slows down and it's not reality anymore. It's all around you. Yeah, yeah. And you look around the board and, and there's the eight finalists and, and there's you, D Armstrong, Blaine Six, from Australia, AUS, and then WR next to it. And then just this one flashing going blink, 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 blink. And you've seen in history, you've yeah. seen all the Olympic races before, yeah. you know exactly what it means and you dreamt about this moment and, you know, it's just all around you and then the other competitors are thanking you. But then what I felt more than anything else, more than elation, more than any, any else was relief. Yeah. Because what you just said, as you said, I asked the question, all the laps, yeah. all the hard work, all the, all the dedication, all the hard decisions I've had to make, all the, the choices to go to the pool instead of going, and doing stuff that a teenager does. It's not a sacrifice, don't get me wrong. Like I was I was preparing myself for this moment. Yeah. But there were hard decisions at the time. And, yeah, yeah. and so when I touched the wall first, instead of saying, yes, I've got all my goals, I've gone, yes, it was all worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> you that and, yeah, and then you sort of like, life takes a completely different turn and, and the rest of it you haven't prepared for. You're prepared for the swimming, but you haven't prepared for the excitement outside yeah. and how it changes everybody's yeah. life. So that, that then becomes the challenge. Right at the start of our conversation, Duncan, you, you made mention of the fact that you, you're um, a follower of Jesus, that you're a man of faith. Yeah. Can you share with us a bit about how that became part of your life and, and what role it now plays in yeah, your identity? Yeah, look, I, uh, my family, we were churchgoers, Brendan. My family growing up right Rockhampton, you know, we went for funerals and weddings only to church. And um, even Dad was, you know, quite prejudiced about how the church had uh, not, I guess, had disappointed him and his family yeah. back in the day, you know. And they don't talk about it and stuff like that. We, they're not going to go into it, but that's basically just the way it went. But um, so I, I didn't have much of a, I knew who Jesus was and things like that. But by the time I got to around about 35 years of age, um, I'd already been married, had two kids, got a quick divorce. I was, I was only married two years got into a 15-year custody battle with my ex-wife. That was just toxic. Mm. Um, really didn't – I wasn't running a lot of good mateships at yeah. that stage. My yeah. idea of a mate was to 
find a bloke, move past him, drop him like a bad habit, move on to the next challenge, next challenge. So I took all that hype and pop competition out of yeah, the water yeah, yeah. Uh, that I learned in yeah. that environment and try to apply it to every environment, to yeah. my media, to, to, to my businesses, um, to my family, to my mates, you know, so-called lover. And so by the time I turned 35, I was really in a bad spot. I, was, I used to take drugs, I used to drink, I became a drunk, I was smoking, and I had all this sort of thing. Meanwhile, I was, I was in all the papers, doing all the magazines, doing all the commentary, and everyone in the world was saying, what a winner. Yeah. What a, what a successful dude. And, but I was living this really two-faced life. I was living the magazine story, which wasn't real, but I manufactured that. And inside, I was just toxic and crushed. Wow. And I was just you know, I was addicted to bad behavior, really. Yeah. And so um, I went through all these really, really challenges to figure out where the swimming stopped and where those values should remain. Yeah. And and what values I really wanted to have in the in the areas I was living my life then. And everybody just wanted to talk about the gold medal. Everyone yeah. just wanted to talk about swimming group. Everyone just wanted to talk about the TV. Everyone. So it was interesting. I was, I was basically a victim of trying to please everybody and what they wanted from me instead yeah. of sort of diving into who I am as a person yeah. and looking at the swimming and the TV and everything is something just I do. Yeah. So I was really confused with my identity in that. And um, and I met this amazing girl. Um, she was my girlfriend. We were going out for about eight years and and she started going to church uh, on, the, on the quiet, silently, yeah. without me knowing because students, girls are smarter than blokes. We all know that. And so um, she, she'd already worked out that you know, we were going nowhere and we were, we were going nowhere in a really, really sort of toxic way. Yeah. And so she really, really wanted more. She wanted more than basically the life that we had. So she started going to church and and then uh, a really strong mate took me to church around about six weeks later than that. And I had this God encounter about the sixth or seventh time I was there. And what God did was um, he just basically... He opened my heart to who I really was, the truth of who I am through him. Yeah. And it, it absolutely ruined me. Like it it made like every time I think about Jesus, I'd cry and sweat, cry and sweat. I don't know why the combination of sweating and crying is such a thing, but I would cry and cry and cry because he was really making it transparent how hard I was working in all these unworthy areas. Yes. And all this work I'd invested in who I thought I was and my ego and my control and my toxic manhood. I really thought that was a lie. And he's come in and shown me, he goes, he goes, son, mm. I didn't make you for any of that. Mm. You know, stick with me, I'll show you who you are mm. in me mm. and give you real strength and colour in your life. Right? Mm. And that's the deal he was trying to push at me. And I just rejected it. I was like, no way, because I was a control freak. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't become you don't become an Olympic champion without being a control freak. Yeah, highly and disciplined. I just that to everything part of my life. Yeah. And so I was crying and I was upset because I I had been introduced to the truth through Jesus Christ and this encounter, and I couldn't control it. And I was really upset about it. And I was, re- you know, really really angry about it. So I read every atheistic book I could find. I went and listened to seminars on people who were trying to turn, turn Jesus into a man. You know, the world famous leaders were going to help me get my control back in my toxic masculinity that I wanted because that was the only thing I knew. And Jesus just kept on giving me a nudge, giving me a nudge, going, no, no, yeah. just look at me now. And, yeah, wow. And so finally about six or seven months later, um, Becky and I, we came to God. He was just so gentle with us and 
So, you know, me and my toxic toxic manhood, I, I basically when I came to God, I, I thought he was lucky to have me. And uh, <laughs> I'd walk around sort of praying to him and go, well, mate, I've given my heart to you. You better make this good. Let's go. You know, what are you going to give me today? Is it going to be worth my while? <laughs> Oh man, I was such a such a crazy person about it. I was such an idiot, and um, and but you know you could really hear Jesus laughing at all, yeah, because he just loves us so much. Yeah. And he loves us individually. He knows what we need, and his plan is so much richer and deeper and more colourful than than any plan or goal or or anything I could possibly do for my yeah. subconscious. Yeah. So he's got this plan for me, and so yeah, it took took a long time, and it's still taking a long time. You know, it's fifteen, sixteen years, but. My wife, Becky, and I we were married within eight months of coming to God. We had this beautiful little girl. We started our family pretty much 12 months after that. So we've got three beautiful kids at home. And got, I've got my two older boys who are 29 and 30 this year um, from my first marriage. And my life, you know, my, my relationship with my ex-wife, my, everything, it's just got better and better and better and better because there's less me in that yeah. and more Jesus. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so as I present him more through my actions and what I say and move out of the way and let him do his work on me and therefore his work on everyone around me, um, my life has ended up, like I was sort of saying, the last 15 years we've got more colour, more depth, more networks of friends, uh, more depth of, of relationship with church, in groups, doing yeah. podcasts, yeah. influencing young men, influencing yeah. young women working in charities. Um, my nine-to-five job is with Telstra, so you influencing a great Australian brand like that in yeah. my position as a uh, as an executive coach. All these sort of things uh, are completely aligned to him now, yeah. and, and the fight is to get my nature out of the way of that. Yeah. You know, so that's, so that's, that's interesting that it's you... A life, it's, a lifelong, it's a lifelong pursuit. Yeah. You, you, you obviously learned a lot of psychology or approaches to life mm. through your swimming career and through the influence of all that success. Mm. In the first part of our conversation, that, that was still a, um, evident in your encouragement that, you know, you, you've got to work hard, you've got to set yourself mm. goals and agendas. And and yet in right in the middle of this is incredible encounter of you losing control and releasing control. <laughs> Where, how, how do you reconcile those, those things that there is this need to work hard to, to discipline yourself, to learn the habits, and yet not not see that as who defines you or becomes the the substitute for being who God called you to be. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I've suffered, what you're saying, Brendan, is I've suffered from being a, a human doing mm. rather than a human being. Yeah, good, good. And it, it's, that, it's that ballet. It's that ballet that our works don't define us, our heart does. Yeah. But if we if we turn our heart to God, He'll put us to work, yeah. and that work will really define Him through us. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's a little bit like the hardest thing I had to learn was how to surrender. Yeah. In the Bible, you know, from the get go, if you're coming to, if you're coming to God, you're going to hear us pretty much out of the gate. Only by surrendering shall you be free. Yeah. And I had a really hard time with that. Like that took me ten years. That took me ten years because I didn't want to surrender. Surrender yeah, and then yeah. we can surrender. Yeah. And then. yeah. I'd be trodden on and then I'd be unsafe or people would have to take advantage of me, you know, or I'd suffer, yeah. So I had a really hard time with that. And, and sometimes I still do. I still fall into the trap of doing my way into heaven, mm. not opening my heart, surrendering and being my way into heaven. All that self-reliance uh, that you learned. Yeah. Mm. 
And and in this world you get paid for it. In this mm. world you get rewarded for it. In this mm. world you get on the paper in the papers for it. In this world you you're in the magazines for it, or on mm. TV, or on Twitter, or in the social craziness that so-called social networks are supposed to be. Mm. So you know you get rewarded for it. So then you've got this like this pull and this push and this yeah. wow and this taste and this oh a little bit more and this momentum and then. All of a sudden, you turn around. There's a group of people excited to see you, and yeah. you know that is, you know, that feeds a part of you that you've really got to be careful. Of. Yeah, yeah. And so, all I do is just keep on holding it up to him, saying, yeah, "Test this. Is this real? Is That's this great. you?" So again, it's like capturing all thoughts and presenting it to the Lord. Yeah. And so, it, it's in that area that I've had my most growth. It's in that area that I've now disconnected, basically chasing a unicorn in the world yeah. for popularity. Because I've got it in me that I want to be popular. You know what I mean? But I'm also determined to be a truth teller. Amen. Now, those two things don't go together all the time. Yeah. So the truth, you're not always going to be popular. And and addicts, you know, and I never went to AA and I never had that much of a, an issue with, with uh, the substances that I was taking and things like that. Um, but when you look at the uh, AA sort of creed, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Addicts mm. Anonymous Creed. They've got three things that they live by. And the first one is um, rigorous authenticity, mm. surrendering the outcome, mm. and doing things that make you uncomfortable. Yeah, wow. And in there is basically how to keep your nature and addictions yes. at bay. Yes. Now, I do that with the Lord. Like, so, Lord, help me be authentic. Amen. What is your, what is your authenticity in this situation, Lord? Is it me? in here wanting to get on this magazine cover? Is it me wanting to lead this project? Is it me working myself to death for this goal? Yeah, that's good. And I think, well, what is it? Is that, what's the authenticity, authenticity in you, Lord? And then the next one is like, I'm surrendering this outcome to you, Lord. Yeah. I'm going to be authentic and tell the truth, and I'm not going to care where it's going to go. Yeah. I've just got to surrender that outcome because that is up to you, Lord. Yeah. Right? Your path, not mine. And the last one is like, through that tension of doing things that make you uncomfortable is growth. Mm. Through that tension, like the Bible is full of tension. Like yep. you read men and women in the Bible, but God calls them out and there's tension yep. because it's hard to grow and yep. it's uncomfortable, but through that uncomfortable is you grow. You know, like in the Bible, they talked about, you know, re, re, renew your mind. Yep. Like that's about brain elasticity that science is now talking about, about growing our brain yep. through reading books and reading stuff that's going to, push you and get that tension and make mm. you grow, right, stretch. And so, you know, my wife is doing a school of profits at the moment and she's being a leader this year after doing it last year. And, you know, it's all gone online with COVID and so it's yeah. stretching her to make yeah, that yeah. connection that she usually feels in a room full of people to actually access the spirit. And so there's real tension now and she'll walk around the house going, you're growing me, God, <laughs> you know, because that's the tension yeah. and that's what we're looking for as followers of Jesus, that we'll never be complete in our own strength. We're never going to be comfortable by our own works. It's only through him and our faith and him stretching us constantly yeah. do we go to the next level, the next yeah. level, and next level following him. So it's those three things that I try to do more and more and more and more, not because I'm an ex-addict, just because I really like those answers. Yeah, yeah. They're easy to remember. Yeah, they're good. And they go back to Mr. Hogan poking me with the cane yeah. saying, are you being a bold boy? Yeah. So if there's this looping anthems in my life. yeah. yeah. But the Bible has now awakened and given me permission to enjoy for what they will work. Yeah, that's good. I was going to ask you, have you had to abandon some of those things 
that were fundamental yeah. in shaping your identity and your your view on life, Mr. Hogan. Uh, are you being all that you can yeah. be? But it sounds as though really yeah. those same principles have, have stood true and now it's, you're listening yeah. to a different coach. It's not Mr. Hogan. It's not yeah. Laurie Lawrence. It's the person of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and he's the only one you can listen to because he understands oh, what a terrible sinner I am. Like, only, see, we get caught up in the story of success, yeah. that it goes from point A to point B and there's no meandering line, it's a straight line, and whoa, well, you're so lucky. Yeah. That's the, you know, I got out of that pool in 1988 after five years of hard work and sort of shutting off my life to be the most unbalanced person, the greatest swimmer yeah. you've ever seen. Yeah. I touched the wall, get out. And a mate come up to me and goes, mate, how lucky are you? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's an incredible statement. Yeah. Okay, but it also shows how we live our life looking at a story and thinking that point A, point B, yeah. not a lot happened in between in terms of pain, suffering, surrender or whatever. So with that going on, um, when I look at all the statements and all the anthems and things that I do have to leave behind and my sinful nature, I've got a coach, Jesus, Father figure, you know, God, who basically knows it all, yeah. knows me, forgives me and allows me to forgive me yeah, yeah. as I take it to him. So I've got this I've got this way of sort of saying, yeah, those antonyms, hey, being a bold boy, all you got to do is tack on the end through Christ. Yeah, 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 good. That's good. Because Christ has got all the answers. Yeah. The Bible is the textbook called the right answers for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we never have to be confused about what we're feeling because every single man in that Bible has felt what I've felt. Yeah, yeah. Every single woman in that Bible has felt what our women feel, yeah. our children. Every The Bible is made up of men like you and I mm. and everybody else through history mm. who gets it awfully wrong but can get it awfully right by following the Lord. Amen. Right? And so for me, I've got a real sense of like, ah, oh, this is the bad moment. I'm going to go to Jesus and get a, get a good moment happening because he's the only one who can. Yeah, right? nice. And that gets away from my strength, gets away from me being a performer yeah. for the popular, to be popular with the group, and I go to to Jesus and say, Jesus, what is what, what do you want me to do in this situation? Because I'll do it. That's and great. he's got the answer. That's great. Duncan, we didn't get a chance. I was going to come back and talk to you about sport as a business, but I'll put that on side. One last question before we finish up. I, I um, there, there would be some folk who would – say amen to all that you've shared and, and have the yeah. the view that um, because of the possible seduction of success, that it's something that Christians shouldn't aspire to, that we should just mm. live, mm. live lives of quiet discipline. Mm. And, and do you think that's, do you think success is something that Christians can rightly set themselves to achieve? Yeah, look, it's a really tricky question, isn't it, Brendan? And it's, we come across different folks all the time who are following Jesus in their way, and and some really want to be austere, and, and others basically go with the uh, prosperity ministries as well, and they've got, you know, properties, supercars, all these sort of things, mega churches. So the way people do their Christianity is between them and Jesus. Mm. And we've got to be careful of how we judge people. Mm. Because Jesus might have given them all those sort of things, and we don't know. We'll have to have a hot chocolate and ask him when we get up. There. Yeah. But what what I do is, you know, I just caution people in terms of what you do and who you do it for. Amen. And if you've got a strong prayer life, and again, this is me sort of saying you need this, 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 and you'll be mm-hmm. successful. So you've got to be careful what I say. 
So, but if you if you are close to Jesus and you have a relationship with Him, it, like most relationships, it'll go down, it'll go, it'll go loud, it'll go quiet, it'll go close, it'll go mm. far, it'll go angry, it'll go forgiveness, all this sort of stuff. It's a relationship with Him, yeah. and that's what He wants more than anything else. And as long as you're presenting yourself in qualitative and quantitative time, like quality and quantity time, that relationship will always be alive, and you'll be less confused about why you're doing things and yeah. who you're doing. That's good. And so, if you, if you and, and then success or, or where you're going to be is going to be a byproduct of that. And it's a little bit like this to use a swimming term. Uh, if you can forget about gold medals and do the work to make yourself the fastest swimmer you can possibly be, the gold medals will come yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah. But if the moment you start heading off towards the gold medals, gold medals, and you think you're going to get that through that path of looking at them, then the fast swimmer won't emerge. Yeah. And it's a little bit like um, uh, what we say about business or sport. While you're winning, the money will always be there. But if you go after the money, the winning will stop. Amen. Yeah. And so it, it's a you know, it's a double-edged sword. That's good. Same as your faith. If you go after the relationship with Jesus Christ, the richness that He wants you to live with will arrive. Yeah. If you go after that relationship and, and make it everything you possibly can be and live through Him and Him through you, so people recognise that you are a Jesus follower, not just a Christian, that you might be a disciple, yeah. and therefore you have no wiggle room in terms of your sinful nature and things like that. If you get on with that, then he will provide all the riches that he's got planned for you. Yeah. And then and then it's less about the number of cars, houses, mm. um, or the lack of cars and houses. Because don't forget, there's an ego above and below yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and again, it's your ego talking if yeah. you start counting up the results of, whereas there's heaps of mega wealthy Christians who have got such a rich blessing in the Lord yeah. in their relationship yeah. first. And I listen to them and I go, wow. So I'm not, I don't kind of sit around going, I'm going to be a really, really wealthy guy. Mm. I already know I am mm. because I'm, I've got a relationship with the creator of the universe. Amen. And he's going to give me in our relationship what he wants to give me. And Amen. that for me is going to be good enough. Awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Simply good enough because I've lived the life with the mansions and the cars and the television shows and the you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. Um, and I say crazy because it didn't suit me and yet I was chasing it. Mm. Okay, that's why I say it's crazy. If, if people are in that world and it suits them, bless your brother, mm. march on. Um, but for me, I was trying to be something I wasn't. I was, mm. I was living a lie mm. in a life that I'd created by myself that mm. had no God in it, had no stability in it. And I was just getting quit. I was thought, it's the old saying, if you don't stand for anything, you fall mm-hmm. for everything. Yeah, yeah. And I was falling for everything. Yeah. And I was like, I was addicted to it. And so having been there, I've got some authority to talk about the wealth and the richness and the flavor and the favor and the color that I live with today yeah. with the life that I have yeah. with Jesus Christ. And it's got none of those things in it. I'm rich with relationship with people, school communities, church communities, charities, I, I really love my work. I've got a great work community. I've got great mates, which is the big one for me. Yeah. I've got great mates who are checking on me all the time and vice versa. I'm so blessed with the men in my life. I've got great relationships with all my kids, either my ex-wife, um, and on and on and on. So for me, that is that is the wealth and the blessing. And yeah, yeah. I haven't had a magazine cover or a, or a newspaper story for years. Yeah. Okay, And it's not because I'm shunning it or I think it's bad or anything. It's just that, my life is focused on him and he's got me focused elsewhere. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. Yeah, Duncan, I'm really, really blessed. I, I know your current work is involved in uh, executive coaching, helping people get clarity and helping people find a path. 
I, I think we've had a bit of a masterclass in some of that through <laughs> what you've been sharing with us. I'm just so grateful that you've lived the life. God has allowed you to experience all that he has, the hard times, the mm. good times, mm. that, that now you can be a blessing to others. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being a vessel for God's truth into, into this conversation. Um, may God be with you and continue to open opportunities for you to do that. Thanks, Brendan. I really appreciate it, mate. I really appreciate your work too with Jay and the rest of the guys. This is a really important thing that you're doing, uh, especially when we're all going online at the moment and reacting um, as a community to COVID-19. What you're doing and how you're pushing this material out on the platforms and the people that will affect it in their homes and elsewhere is truly inspirational work. So I really like the name of your project and podcast. Thanks. And thanks very much. God bless you. Thank you.